Um, Father, as we study your word, we, we ask for discernment, we ask for wisdom, we ask for your Holy Spirit to make us wise and understanding. Uh, we, we long to see your glory, Lord. We, we pray for your glory to be lifted up in this world, in our church, in our lives, in our neighborhoods. And we also ask that your kingdom would come, Lord. As we look at this text, we're going to see the heart that you have to reach people who are far from you and the calling that you gave your disciples to go out and to spread this message. And so we pray for your kingdom to come, and we pray for people even now to enter into the glory of your kingdom. And so help our church be about that, we pray. We give you praise this morning. We love you. We thank you for Easter and everything that you did then in the resurrection of your son and in our church. And we just worship you for all of these things this morning. Amen. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 if you want to kind of start to turn there. But just before Easter, we concluded this series that we were doing called Heartbeat, where we were exploring the core values that we share together as a church. And now we're going to jump back into this series that we've been sort of picking at for uh, over a year now as we've made our way through Luke, the gospel according to Luke. And as I was reading our passage in Luke chapter 9 this week, I couldn't help but notice how this passage of Scripture lines up with our core values and lines up with our mission statement here at Maricopa Springs. Um, And the reason why uh, Luke chapter 9 lines up with Maricopa Springs uh, and our mission and our vision is because Our core values and the mission of our church is lifted right out of the pages of Scripture. We're confident that the Bible is the very Word of God Himself, and it would therefore be utterly ridiculous for our church to have some kind of core values or mission that is not basically straight from the mouth of God Himself. And so while we're done with this series that we were calling Heartbeat— where we specifically talked about our core values. Don't be surprised as we study Luke if these things find their way into what we're discussing from week to week. Uh, Because again, uh, our core values are in line with what we believe God values as he's revealed it in Scripture. Um, So let's read Luke chapter 9 together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, And he, that's Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. When I was uh, 19 years old, I was so passionate about the gospel going to the ends of the earth, in particular going to places uh, where the gospel was not yet being proclaimed, that I sort of made it my life goal, my mission, to end up in the nation of Saudi Arabia, which is a Muslim country, where I hoped that God would give me the opportunity to, to preach the gospel and maybe plant a church and then ultimately die a martyr by the time I was 35, okay? 
I kid you not, you can ask my wife. We had conversations about it. Like, that was my life goal when I was a punk 19-year-old kid. Psalms tells us that a man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his ways, which is fortunate, right? And now that I'm a little bit older and a little bit wiser, I'm glad that God uh, directed my paths to Maricopa and not martyrdom. Um, <laughs> But in pursuit of this dream to end up in Saudi Arabia to proclaim the gospel where it wasn't being proclaimed, I ended up training for a summer on a short-term missions trip to Pakistan. And Pakistan, as you probably know, hopefully know, is a country that is hostile to Christianity. In fact, if you were paying attention to the news, the international news last week, then you saw that on Easter Sunday, 70 primarily women and children were killed in a suicide bombing as they were celebrating Easter together at a park. Just a terrible tragedy. The trip, that, that took place in Lahore, which is in southern Pakistan. I was in northeastern Pakistan, but we actually traveled through the city of Abbottabad, which is where Osama bin Laden was killed. Uh, and anyway, the point of my story is that while we were in Pakistan, we traveled, much like this passage of Scripture, from village to village with almost nothing uh, belonging to us, giving away Bibles to basically anyone who would listen to us as we told them about Isa Masih, Jesus the Messiah. I have a couple pictures here I'll show you um, just of what Pakistan looks like. There's one of a mountain scene, which will hopefully come up here. Anyway, as you're looking at those first two pictures, we, we met a missionary on our way uh, to northern Pakistan, and we snuck into his house in the dead of night He filled our giant backpacks with Bibles, and then we snuck back out into the night, and we journeyed literally from village to village through the Karakoram mountain range as we talked with people, again, with basically nothing but the clothes on our backs and the Bibles in our packs. Uh, And it was very much like this scene from the Gospel of Luke. Um, These are a couple of guys that we actually stayed with. The guy on the left, we met him in one village, and he said, uh, where are you staying? And we said, well, where's the hotel? He said, there is no hotel. And so he put us up in his house for two nights while he and his mom uh, basically slept outside in the cold. About 50% of the time, I would say, we, we ended up sleeping in somebody's house um, because there was no hotel. There was no, no place for us to stay apart from the kindness of somebody opening their home to us. And this passage of Luke seriously was a great encouragement to us because it led us to believe that God would take care of us on this journey, that we would encounter people who would show us hospitality, and also that not everybody that we encountered in every village would treat us kindly. We sort of felt like we had stepped into the pages of Scripture, and we were living this story ourselves. Now, I think that that's a wonderful experience to have, but we do have to be careful when we read our Bibles that we don't just automatically, directly apply everything that Scripture says to our 21st century lives as if the Bible wasn't written to a specific group of people at a specific time for a specific culture. We need to understand the setting of Scripture so that we can wisely discern how do these true stories intersect with my life? How do they apply to my setting here and now in Maricopa? So, for example, does our scripture from Luke chapter 9 mean that all of us, when we leave church here today, 
should go out this afternoon with no staff and no bag and no money and no extra clothes as we go from village to village with the expectation that we're going to preach and proclaim the gospel and heal people and cast out demons? Should we literally shake off the dust from our feet as a testimony against those who don't receive our message? And what I'm getting at is there are some very applicable Christian core values that are being revealed to us in this passage of Luke, as in every passage of Scripture. But I think that reading and applying God's Word requires some discernment through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we're not discerning, then I think we can risk kind of misapplying God's Word, right? So let's look at this carefully and kind of discern what God intends for us to hear today. Let me read verses 1 through 2 again. It says, And Jesus called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now I would say this is definitely a unique situation. The twelve are Jesus' twelve disciples, the apostles. And I would say that Christ uniquely empowers them to do some extraordinary things in his name. So extraordinary that King Herod begins to believe that a prophet of old has been uh, reincarnated or that John the Baptist, who he killed, has been raised from the dead. And Jesus gives to his 12 disciples power and authority over demons and to cure diseases, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And now we... We are not apostles, right? We do not have the authority of the apostles. But aren't there some principles here that we can assume do indeed apply to disciple or to Christians today? I think so, right? Absolutely. I don't know if you realize this, but if you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Which means that the very power of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday, is alive and dwelling inside of you right now as we speak. Which means that you have the power and the authority of Christ himself. Okay, the church today, it debates hotly whether uh, this means that Christians can indeed cast out demons and do miracles of healing. Okay, personally, I do believe that the supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit is in fact alive in the church today and in the world today. But I want us to just set aside the phenomenal work of the Holy Spirit for a second, and let's lay aside some of our doctrinal differences about the exceptionally miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, verse 2 says that Jesus sent his 12 apostles out to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God. I believe that the Great Commission, Matthew 28, hopefully you know it. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe that that mandate that Jesus gave his disciples at that point extends to us in the 21st century, to you and to me. And so whatever you believe about the phenomenal work of the Holy Spirit, okay, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit doing miracles today, isn't the heart of the gospel the good news that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Isn't that the core of the message? 
Isn't the heart of the gospel the good news that in Christ's resurrection, we too are resurrected to new life? We pass from death to life. Jesus, he quoted Isaiah early in his ministry. We looked at this maybe a year ago when we studied Luke. And he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, freedom to those who are oppressed, the announcement of the year of the Lord's favor. And as Christians, don't we believe that in this age, even now, our world is subjected to the demonic forces of Satan until Christ returns in his fullness to reign in justice. That, that is what we believe as Christians. So while I think it's true that the apostles had a unique empowering by Jesus himself, I believe that we too are empowered by the same Holy Spirit to set people free from the power of sin and death and to proclaim the kingdom of God realized here and now. We're sent to heal dead hearts through the good news of Jesus Christ, to to cure the disease of spiritual blindness through the proclamation of the gospel, to set people free from Satan's power in the name of Jesus. And so I firmly believe that every Christian can follow the example of the 12 apostles here by going out to a lost and hurting world to announce to those that are in darkness that the kingdom of God has come. There is salvation for all who trust in Christ. And that, my friends, that I believe, it's good news that brings healing to people's lives. It sends the demonic darkness fleeing in fear. It cures the broken human heart. And so whatever you believe about miracles aside, all Christians are called to proclaim the miracle of the resurrection and through the resurrection of Christ, the good news of the miraculous resurrection of all who have their faith in Jesus. And this is why our church has as its mission statement, helping people meet and follow Jesus. It's why we have the core value of missional living where we view our circle of influence as the place that God has called us to live out his mission for our lives. His mission that we be men and women that proclaim hope, the hope of the kingdom of God, which has come in power through the resurrection of Christ. And every time that we tell somebody about this hope in Jesus that we have, the good news, we're actually exercising the very power and authority of Christ himself to heal the spiritually blind, to raise dead hearts to life, to bring liberty and victory from demonic forces that Christ has power over. And so I have to ask this question. Do we actually see the power within which we have been sent today? Do we see the urgency with which Christ sends us to go? Do you believe that this very power that empowered the apostles empowers you today as you carry on God's mission? Next, Jesus tells his disciples how they should travel. Verses 3 through 5. It says, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. I think if Jesus means this literally, um, I'm I'm in trouble because I don't even have one tunic, I don't think. But... But the question comes, should then 
should we, as we go, should we take nothing with us? I believe that there's a lesson for the disciples here that we can learn to some degree through them. It's a lesson of faith, a lesson of trust. Unlike some prosperity preachers today, Jesus seemed to think that if his disciples had nothing with them as they went, but they had the good news, then they had everything that they needed. The gospel that's popular in America today is a gospel that dishonestly claims that God wants nothing more for Christians than for them to just be happy and healthy and rich and safe. The gospel that's popular in America today is a false gospel that says that God's desire is for you to have everything that you want in this life so that you need nothing, not even him. And yet Jesus sends out his disciples with nothing. Why? Because he wants them to believe in his power and his provision. He wants them to understand that following Jesus in this life may in fact cause you to feel uncomfortable. It may be inconvenient. It may require growing faith or patient perseverance, circumstantial uncertainty even, that, the, that God will be sure in his promises. And I think we too need to learn this lesson. Jesus does not promise us that being a Christian means that we will be happy and healthy and rich and safe. He promises us what I believe is something so much better, so much greater, so much more valuable than all the riches of this world. He says to his disciples again, Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what is better than happiness and good health and riches and safety? Those things are good, but what is better? Jesus is better. The presence of God and the Spirit of Christ, it surpasses all other treasures this world has to offer. And nothing compares to the riches of being found in Christ Jesus. It's worth noting that in Luke twenty two thirty five, we'll get there in like 10 years if we keep on the pace that we're on. <laughs> Jesus, before he goes to the cross, as he's with his disciples with this, for this one last meal, he reminds them of God's provision and he says to them, when I sent you out with no money bag and no knapsack and no sandals, did you lack anything? And they reply, their response to him is nothing. And so the lesson for us is that the Christian life, it's not a call to safety or security or easy convenience or comfort, ultimately. It is a call ever deeper into the presence of Christ who fills us, who empowers us, who cares for us, who provides for us. Whatever the circumstances may be in this life, he cares for us. It's a call into deeper faith, into deeper satisfaction in Christ, in Christ alone. He is faithful in everything, but we must learn to trust him. So now, what are we going to do with the command that Jesus gives to shake the dust off of the feet, off of our feet, as a testimony against those who don't receive the message? Again, this is sort of a strange one. How do we apply it? Is this a passive-aggressive act of spite against those who refuse to hear? Is that what it is? Are we justified, because of what Jesus says here, to write off those who don't believe and assume that they don't belong? Does this give us the right to look down our noses at those who don't hear our message and receive it? 
And here's an instance, I think, where it's very important for us to understand the first century context versus the 21st century context, okay? Jesus is sending out his disciples among the sheep of Israel, the people of Israel. He's sending them out to the Jews because they were the first ethnic group to receive the gospel, okay? Jesus came with the priority to tell Israel first. Now, we can assume from this passage that some people are not going to receive the message that we proclaim to them today. Jesus makes that apparent. But shaking off the dust of the feet against those people, for the Jews in the first century, for the apostles, it was actually not an act of angry, passive-aggressive rejection in return. Okay? The Jews had a custom When they traveled from village to village and they passed through pagan cities, Gentile cities, as they left the city and they walked out of the city gates, they would shake the dust off of their feet, a symbolic act of disassociating themselves with the godless behavior, the sins of the people who were far from God. And every Jew would have been familiar with this custom, okay? So, It was a custom they would perform against those who were far from God. And if the disciples went to the Jews and the Jews didn't receive the announcement that the kingdom of God had finally come in the person of Jesus Christ, and in response then the the disciples were to shake the dust off of their feet, the Jews would see this as a clear warning. It wasn't that the disciples were condemning them, but rather the disciples were carrying out a great symbolic act that these people were actually in danger of being excluded from the kingdom of God, the people of God. They were like pagans and Gentiles. And so a Jew who rejected the message might actually pick up on this mercifully symbolic act and realize they were in danger of being found outside of the community of God. And so the act of shaking dust off their feet, it wasn't judgment or scorn. It was a clear warning. If you reject Jesus, then you are not God's people. Now, we're definitely not going to shake the dust off of our feet to warn those who don't hear us today. People would be like, what in the world is going, like, why are you putting dust on my carpet? (laughs) But I do believe that there is a lesson for us here. Do we scorn those people who don't listen? And in scorning them today, do we thereby sort of ensure that in the future, when the message comes again, they won't hear it? Do we assume that godless people who deny our message today will still deny it tomorrow? Let me get it a little bit more personal. Do we believe that Muslims engaging in jihad today aren't worth our prayers because they couldn't possibly believe in Jesus? Do we think that gays and lesbians are beyond the reach of the gospel because at this moment in time they refuse the message and they're hostile towards Christianity? Do we think that the hardened atheists we know are too hard-hearted for God to ever penetrate their heart so that they might see and believe? Do we think that teens who might be caught up in binge drinking and sexual promiscuity could never receive the gospel because... They're clearly far from God right now. Do we think that our neighbors who know that we go to church, they're not worth telling the good news again because they know we go to church and if they were ever going to receive it, they would have already received it. 
Do we write people off and assume that who they are or what they do means that they must be beyond the love of Christ? Or do we continue to offer people the good news again and again and again, always warning them and praying for them and hoping and believing that God might change their hearts? Do we shake off the dust of our feet in anger they didn't receive us? Or do we graciously preach the good news again and again in hopes that maybe this time they will hear and believe by the grace of God? Now we see in verse 6, the disciples go, they preach, they heal, they proclaim the good news. And the result is that the good news spreads, and it spreads so far that it uh, penetrates even the house of the king, King Herod. And he's so amazed and he's so curious about the power and authority of Jesus displayed in his followers that he wonders, who could this man be that they follow? And he desires to see Jesus for himself to satisfy his curiosity about Christ. Okay, now people today, they don't have the luxury of actually seeing Jesus in the flesh, do they? At least not until he returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses. But people today do have the luxury of seeing Jesus in his followers, in you and in me. We see Herod's excitement And I can't help but ask the question, why is it that nobody is knocking down the doors of churches out of curiosity to see the power and authority of God at work in the world today, at work in the lives of Christians? Where has the curiosity for Jesus gone? Where's the wonder that once captivated Herod when he heard about the wonderful things that the disciples were doing in the name of Jesus as they proclaimed his kingdom come? I think that there's two possible answers to the question, where has the wonder gone? Option A, God has stopped working in the world. And so the wonder has gone because he's not working any longer. And I refuse to accept this possibility because I think Scripture denies it. It is not possible. So I believe the other answer is that the wonder has dried up because the people of God have stopped working. Is it possible that so few Christians are truly living in the power and authority of God, that the world has ceased to see the kingdom of God is here now? Is it possible that the reason the the world is not busting down the doors of churches to get a glimpse of Jesus through his people is because the only thing that sets Christians apart is that they get up early on Sunday morning to go to church? Is it possible that nobody seems to care anymore because Christians aren't really exceptional people. They don't really seem to care anymore. And sadly, I think there's some reality to this. I'm overstating it to kind of emphasize a point, okay? So don't let your feelings be hurt. But there is some truth here, isn't there? Let me show you what I mean. If I ask your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family, to tell me all of the amazing ways that you are radically different from the other neighbors or coworkers or family members that they have. Would they say that you are so different because you're extremely loving, you are so gracious? You have a strange, otherworldly confidence in this God that you believe in. You don't worry or feel anxious. You are patient. You're kind and you're generous, unlike most other people that they know. You don't drive like a road rage crazy person on 347. Would they say that it's almost as if 
you, unlike most other people that they know, you as a Christian live in a totally different kingdom than the other people that they know? Or would these people simply think that you're a Christian who goes to church and that's about it? Would the people see, the people around you, would they see the power of Christ at work in you? Would they desire to know more about it as God works his power in us? Or would they sort of shrug their shoulders and think, yeah, there goes another Christian who gets up early on Sunday morning. Okay, so what was it that Jesus sent his disciples out to do? He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, which practically speaking, in very simple terms, the kingdom of God is the reality that right now, in this very moment, God reigns. You and I and every person on this planet is actually living under the kingship of Christ as I speak. And your primary citizenship right now is not America It's the kingdom of Christ Jesus where he reigns. And the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings now. And so when terrorists blow themselves up and people die, Jesus is still king. When the government passes laws that take away your religious freedom, Jesus is still king. When your favored politician loses and you feel this sense of despair that the world is going to crud, Jesus still reigns. When the doctor tells you that your condition is bad, even terminal, Christ remains seated on his throne with all power and all authority, and you are in his kingdom. When our children choose folly and they wander from what we have taught them and our hearts break, Jesus is still king. The good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and king of kings now. And when we sin and Satan, the accuser, comes to condemn us, Jesus is still king. And when we willfully wander from obedience to God in repentance, God reminds us that Christ is king of our hearts now. He reigns. And even when we fail to faithfully carry out his mission, the good news, it encourages us that he is already king of kings and Lord of Lords. In every trial, in every effort, in every moment of joy and every moment of suffering, in every glory and every difficulty, the Christian is anchored in the good news. The kingdom of God is here. It has been established by Christ through his death and resurrection, and Jesus reigns both now and forever. Amen. Let me pray. God, we give you glory today because from our perspective, this world looks out of control. From our perspective, our lives are out of control. We are too busy. There's never enough money. There's never enough time. We are lonely. We are sad. We feel abandoned and we feel despair. From our perspective, things are not going the way that they should. And we give you glory this morning, Lord Jesus, because you reign and you are king. Even now, your kingdom is coming. Even now, your kingdom has come. Even now, you are seated on the throne of glory with all power and all authority. And so, God, would you help us to be people who faithfully proclaim this message, not just people who get up early on Sunday morning, but people who live in the power and authority of your resurrected Son, Jesus. 
God, we need you desperately to do this in our lives. And so we pray for our community here, Lord, that this would be a church that proclaims the kingdom of God. Lord, would you make us faithful in that, even as we worship you in these moments ahead. Amen.